Hello and welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the vlogcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers. During this episode, I sit down for a chat with Elliot Morgan, a teacher in London who shares his experience of teaching and leading in the nation's capital, the fundamentals of task design, and all he holds dear in terms of professional development. Whether you're new to teaching or a school leader with tons of experience, this interview is a must listen. Now, if you happen to be listening on your preferred podcast provider, don't miss out on the extended cut in which Elliot takes on the school's interview process tier list, ranking some of the most common school interview tasks. Full interviews are available on the Thinking Deeply About Primary Mathematics YouTube channel or thinkingdeeply.info, where full show notes and references can be found. And without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. So Elliot, thank you very much for joining us at Thinking Deeply About Primary Education. Um, it's nice to have you. How are you? I'm not bad. Thanks for inviting me on. So we always start with um, our guests in numbers. And so you can only respond using numbers just to get a, a flavour of who you are and where you're from. So the first question is years as a teacher. Five. Number of schools. Uh, two. Last year group taught. Two. Favourite year group? Uh, six. Most important year group? Um, th- this is this is a difficult one. I think I'm going to shoot myself in the foot, whatever I say. But I think in terms of primary education, I think I would go with year one. Because um, <clears throat> it's sort of the start of the the primary curriculum. You've got like children's getting like, properly settled into the routine of sitting at tables and sitting on the carpet doing work, then sitting at tables and sitting at tables for extended periods of time. Um, it's like the the foundation of all of like their maths and their literacy with like the phonics and number bonds is very heavy. Um, so I reckon I'd have to say, yeah, year one, if I had to pick one. Sounds good to me. Blog posts? 17. Blog hits? <clears throat> uh, just over 38,000. Impressive. And tweets? Uh, just under 7,000, so I think about 6,800 something. Nice. That's, that's about double double what I've got them in. That's, that's a respectable number. <laughs> and so tell us about your journey as a teacher and how you got to where you are now. Um, so for I didn't know I wanted to be a teacher, or I didn't think about applying um, to do a PGC until I was second year of university. So I did politics and sociology, um, neither of which I wanted to pursue as a career. Um, and then the university emailed me one day and said, there's an opportunity to go and work in a primary school. Like, and, um, and there was also an opportunity to work in a secondary school. Um, and the secondary school was working with children who are sort of on the periphery of getting a C grade in English and trying to help them to get a C grade. Um, so I did that for a few weeks and I really enjoyed that. And then I also worked in a, um, a primary school where it was like 95% EAL because, um, they were children who traveled over with their parents. Their parents were studying at the university for a semester or a, or a year or whatever it may be. And they, they bring their children over. So, and I was working in the school and, and I just found it fascinating trying to teach these kids who, <laughs> who couldn't speak English. <laughs> um, and I think that's where sort of my interest in teaching maths came along because there isn't as much of a need for language per se as there is in others if that makes sense well as they say maths is the universal language um so then i decided to do a pgc um at the university of greenwich um i finished that and uh, 
while I was on that, I went, did a placement at a school. They offered me a job. So, um, and I was told when, when I was at university, if you get offered a job, they're so hard to come by. Uh, there's a job shortage and all this stuff. So I panicked and I, I just said, yes, I took it on. Um, I did my NQT year there. I enjoyed it. Um, it wasn't, I didn't think the NQT year was as hard as people had made it out to be this mythical, uh, sort of challenge. And I did, I just didn't see it. I think I built it up in my head, basically what people had said. And I didn't find it as difficult as, as what I'd, I thought I'd led myself to believe. Um, and then, uh, another school that I worked at as, um, on my university placement contacted me and said, um, a year six opportunities come out, um, as well as, um, leading maths would you be interested and I thought well you always told maths and English are the big subject so I, I sort of jumped to the opportunity so I went to my second school um I was a maths lead there for four years I was um I taught in year six year five year two I was a lead practitioner so keeping up to date with research and and informing all the rest of the teachers about it training other teachers in it um that sort of stuff and then I left teaching to join an educational startup um, creating CPD resources and classroom resources and materials. Uh, and now I'm looking to get back into, um, into schooling as an, like an assistant head or a lead teacher, uh, maybe a deputy head, if I can find the school that will take me along those sort of lines. And that brings me up to today. Yeah, there, there probably couldn't have been a more difficult time to join a startup. Um, and <laughs> with, you know, most established companies struggling, you know, during a global pandemic and, yeah, so that must have been an interesting experience to say the least. Well, well, I mean, I applied and got the job. The reason I went for it in the first place is because I was pursuing a deputy headship in the school I was in and sort of things were lining up for it to be that way. The head was retiring and then the deputy head was going to potentially um, move up a spot to the um, head teacher and then I would take on deputy head. Um the way things transpired, the deputy head changed their mind, or I don't even know if that was ever there, really their intention. That was just sort of the under the assumption I was under. Um, so then it, I sort of just said to myself, well, where does that leave me? There's no room to go up. And I, although I love the school, I love everybody there. Um, it's an incredible school. Um, I, I, I've always wanted to just keep going up and up and up and the opportunities for that sort of run out. So I thought, oh, why don't I look elsewhere? At the time, I couldn't, there were no assistant head jobs or anything anywhere. This is December last year. So then I applied for this job. I get it. Obviously, December in the UK, 2019, I mean, coronavirus wasn't even a thing. It wasn't being reported on widely. Um, <clears throat> and then by the time I left school in May, <laughs> obviously, coronavirus is quite widespread. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of struggled with funding and um, just, yeah, COVID, it was, like you said, it was just impossible really to fighting an uphill uphill battle trying to um make an, uh, a startup work in a, in a pandemic um so but i suppose things um have a funny way of working themselves out because i i do really miss working in a school and i spent even though i left in may i spent this whole time still reading research still engaging with twitter still reading um books that people people put out um so yeah I mean, I might even just go back into classroom teaching. I, I don't know yet, but I certainly want to go back into, into working in a school. Yeah, because that would be quite exciting, getting to test out all the stuff you've read about over the last couple of months in the classroom. Yeah, I think a lot of people look forward to that. Um, yeah, and despite what you've been to what you've told or been told, 
then there's definitely not a job shortage so i'm sure you'll be absolutely fine <laughs> you know pretty yeah sad. i can't i can't believe I, I i fell for that but i can't remember who told me i don't know if it was just like other students or um or a lecturer or something but I, I just panicked and was like oh yeah go on i'll take it why not um yeah i mean i, I that <laughs> that job i was told i was going to be a year three teacher so I, I spent like most of my summer and the time not to like preparing all these year three resources and units to learn and stuff and then um about a week before they're like yeah we need you to go into year five so <laughs> all that preparation i'd done <laughs> was just like just went out the window um that was sort of the first lesson in understanding you've got to be flexible as a teacher. Yeah, 100%. Um, so I think one of the reasons for these interviews is to sort of support teachers who are developing their practice. And one of the key questions is what, what would the four key features of a Mr. Morgs lesson be? Um, I mean, like, I'm sure everybody says this, but you could just, you could just think of four different, each day I could think of four different things. But these, these are the four that I've arrived at. Um, I'm just going to sort of cheat a little bit with my first one because it's a, a, a phrase or a term that sort of encompasses a lot of things. Um, but that would be direct instruction. So not um, Engelman's program of direct instruction, which is capital D, capital I, uh, with like the scripted lessons and things like that. I'm talking about the direct instruction with the lowercase d, lowercase i, which I think is attributed to Rosenschein. And I think it came about sort of in like the 70s or 80s when he um, sort of first introduced like 10 principles. And I now I think it's morphed into like 12 or 17 in, in some papers um, that you see today. So it would be um, in the lesson, you'd see sort of like clear explanations, um, small steps, um, guided practice, explicit modeling, sort of the I do, uh, we do, you do, that sort of thing. You wouldn't see um, sort of discovery based learning. In, in my lessons, which I know a lot of people are going, oh, he's a trad. Oh no, <laughs> burn the witch. Um, but that, that, I'm, I'm very traditional in that sense, in, in my view of, of teaching. Um, but I think, it, I think it's potentially in a Rosenstein paper um, or somebody talking about Rosenstein where they say the most successful teachers spend the most time talking, uh, sorry, more time talking, more time explaining, more time asking questions, more time correcting errors, more time modeling, um, more time guiding and so on. And then only letting learners go on to the independent practice once you, you're, you're sure that they're ready to do so. So that would be my first thing. I know that that's a lot of little things in one, but it, it has it's an umbrella term, isn't it, for a way, a style of instruction, I suppose. My second thing would be um, explicit vocabulary instruction. So. I've only ever worked in London in schools that have high um, EAL percentages. So vocabulary instruction, I've always found has been particularly important. Um, and, it, and it sort of has two, the, the benefits of it are sort of twofold because not only does it help to build their vocabulary and sort of, that's for these EAL children, but to keep them, like build their vocabulary, to keep them sort of in line with their peers. But the beauty of vocabulary is that it can also act as sort of this retrieval cue. Um, so like you're looking at morpho morphology and etymology all the time. If I use a maths example, um, the one I would think of is verter, which is the Latin, to, which means to turn. And it's where we get the word vertex from. So I imagine a lot of primary school teachers, when they're teaching the term vertex in maths, we would say it's a corner or it's where two edges meet. But the children are just sort of expected to remember the word vertex there. But if we look at the etymology of it and we understand that it comes from verter, which means to turn, 
suddenly the idea of getting to a vertex in a shape, I understand it's a, a point where I can turn around it. If I'm going around the perimeter of the shape, there's a bit where I turn. So that the, vert the word vertex sort of becomes easy to understand there. There's something more to, to, to latch onto, to remember. Um, and then when I'm looking at um, dividing fractions later on in year six, I think it comes in, doesn't it? Um, and I'm looking at the word invert. I need to invert the fraction. And, and that comes, that's the same root word. Um, so you can see there's, there's, a, there's a rich sort of um, thread that you can build with vocabulary. And I think it just filters through the entire curriculum. There's a lot of Latin and Greek roots um, that, that we see throughout a lot of the subjects, through science, through maths. Um, so that would be the second thing. So first thing, direct instruction. Second thing, um, explicit vocabulary instruction. The third thing is what I always describe as or call um, accessible and challenging for all. I think a lot of people, I mean, it's more commonly known as low entry, high exit. Um, so I'm sort of, I'm very anti-differentiation. Um, I rarely ever differentiate lessons three ways. I certainly don't differentiate them six ways. Um, uh, so it, going back to direct instruction is sort of the, the, the underpinning principle of that is that every child can learn if the content is taught uh, correctly or taught appropriately. Um, and that's something I truly believe in. I, 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 like having been in year six for three years, it was always, well, why differentiate it four or five ways if they've all got a learning objective for, this, for the test? Um, I think having taught for, uh, in, a less, in a year group where they're working towards a test or tests at the end of the year has probably massively influenced my teaching. Um, it made me think like I've got to get all these children to the same point. Um, obviously, some children will have more depth in their understanding um, and some children will be higher attainers and some children will be lower attainers. I, I, I fully understand that. Um, but I think you can sort of scaffold down. There's no reason why the people, the children that you deem low attainers can't access challenging work. I think if you set low work, you're going to get low results. Um, so yeah, it, it's about making it accessible for all children and making it challenging for all children. Um, and then the last one, I would say, I'll just call it a depth of knowledge. I, tr I try to tie in a lesson to the lesson that came before it and the lesson that will come after it. I tried to do meaningful cross-curricular links where possible. So I wouldn't just make a Roman shield in art because we're studying Romans in history. It, there's got to be some meaningful connection to sort of build that knowledge and make it uh, create a depth of understanding. So if they were going to make Roman shields in art, I would be, uh, I would want to go, all right, so we've, we've made them. Now let's look at the Testudo formation. Everybody line up, let's put them there and let's see why the Romans had that formation. That would be the sort of depth I would want to have in my lessons. So a quick summary would be number one, direct instruction. Number two, uh, vocabulary instruction. Number three, accessible and challenging for all. And then number four, a depth of knowledge. Uh, that's a great list. I really like the example of the explicit vocabulary instruction and because the definition almost embodies the meaning of the of the idea and and I think we often find that with um, with Latin and Greek roots is that you, you're almost halfway to explaining something you know and in particular when, when you're looking at angles as a measurement of turn or a unit of turn, we, we quite often miss that step out um, and we go straight to measuring them and we go to, you know, using them or recognizing, you know, the common features and stuff. But actually, a lot more time should be spent 
on considering what an angle actually is. And there's a clue in the in the um, in one of the definitions you know associated with it. And so I think that's 100% something that we should focus our attention on. Um, and I also really like um, the way you just you know outlined that you've got this minimum benchmark for pupils because I think that's something. It's reasonably more popular now than when I started teaching. Yeah. But I think I, I would say so, yeah. There was definitely a time when when we had to race through the curriculum and we started at level level one and we and we worked our way up, and um, where that wasn't always the case. And I think that's something that you know anyone listening should really definitely aspire to and look into more is how that is sort of realized because I think it's important because you'll often find that quite a lot more pupils rise to those expectations than uh, than you might initially give them credit for you know through no fault of your own yeah i mean well i mean we you and i were discussing the pygmalion effect weren't we earlier about the idea that if, if you have high expectations it, it tends to yield high results and and the opposite where the golem effect where you have if you have low expectations then you're going to get low results and, and that is truly what i believe if you give um I mean, most people differentiate three ways, let's say in maths, and let's say you've got like your lower attainers, your middle attainers, your higher attainers. If you give those lower attainers that low work, then there's a ceiling that they can't, there's nothing for them to excel at. And there's no, just because they don't understand geometry doesn't mean they're going to not understand uh, adding two-digit numbers. And, and I think often we'll just go, right, because they're not good at some maths or a certain amount of maths, they're just on the red table or the green table, whatever it may be. And they're always going to do this work. And then purple table, they're sort of all right, and they're going to get this work. I, I, for me, I've just, I've never really found that works. And I've always, every year group, all, all my years of teaching, I've always had a couple of children who would have been deemed lower attainers when they've come into my classroom, who've ended up sort of becoming middle attainers or higher attainers and really surprising everyone. And I'm like, I've had sort of my deputy or my head trying to say, oh, it's amazing teachings. And I'm like, I don't think it is. I think that these children are capable of a lot more than we were, we thought they could be. And we were, we were sort of giving them a ceiling that they couldn't, they couldn't go above. And then it's just giving them the opportunity to, to prove themselves, isn't it? To try. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I am, I could talk all day about differentiation and, and why I don't really truly agree with it in, in its sort of most um, common form. I, I, I understand the sort of general implication of it and, and sort of do believe in it, but I just think it's not executed well in, in practice. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the model you've outlined goes a long way to helping a lot of pupils learn what we want them and what, what they need to learn. And, you know, and especially with that scaffold, you know, because I think that goes a long way. And then, you know, it, like you say, it comes through in Rose and Shine, it comes through in a lot of reading and, yeah, so I, yeah, I, I think um, you'd find a lot of those features in my lessons too. So tell us about your approach to teaching in the foundation subjects. You know, what are, what are the most important or common features in when you're teaching the foundation subjects? So uh, how I teach or how I approach foundation subjects, I would say is probably very different from literacy and numeracy. I spend a lot more time reading uh, building my subject knowledge, I spend a lot more time planning. Um, I think with literacy, I'm fortunate enough to be at a point in my career where I can literally just sort of think about what I want to teach and I can just turn up and teach it. 
I feel confident enough in my ability. I, I wasn't like that at the start, but now I feel like um, if I want to do, do uh, let's use an example, a newspaper report around some topic, I reckon I could just turn up on Monday. I'd literally just make my PowerPoint or my presentation or wherever it is on the spot and, and I can teach from that. Um, maths, I think, is a little bit more nuanced than that. I think I spend more time planning and thinking about that. Um, but when it comes to foundation subjects, I spend a lot more time than because I'm less knowledgeable about teaching them than I am maths and literacy. Because I mean, maths and literacy, if you teach, you're teaching those five hours a week, geography, I might teach once every two weeks or once a week. Um, so my, I would say, if I was going to put it in one word, I would say my approach differs in depth. I think I put a lot more focus into assessment and planning uh, my own knowledge about my own subject knowledge and pedagogical content knowledge. Um, so that, that'd be my general approach. Um, and I, when I started teaching the foundation subjects, it was sort of um, the assessment in it was, oh, you've got to do extended writing because literacy across the curriculum without any proper thoughts into what that actually entails. So it would be, oh, let's write, um, let's write a newspaper report as a as a, an ancient greek soldier or something like that but what why would they be writing a newspaper report or whatever it may be um so i think the the most important features i think the issues i would say rather than features are, are sort of threefold i think there's a lack of depth there's a lack of continuity and there's a lack of assessment um those would be the, the three features that i think are the most important to think about and would it differ between subjects? I mean, there's certainly differences in, in, in the processes, yeah. Um, my experience of subject leadership in foundation subjects is quite varied through, through no fault of, of the, the teachers. Um, I think often you rarely have subject experts. I, I mean, I've personally never worked with like a geography lead who did geography at university or even did it at A-level. And that was true for a lot of the subjects. So I think people end up taking taking on subjects they're not particularly confident. So when I took on uh, maths lead, I, I admit I was not ready for that. And I, I should certainly have built my knowledge um, before I took it on, but taking it on helped me to build my knowledge. So I saw this, they go hand in hand, I guess. But I think foundation subjects, so some, they're often taught in like blocks of just one term. So there'll be like one term geography and the next term it'll be history or they might teach one week geography, then the next week it's history and so on. And that sort of blocking and spacing is very different to having maths and English every day. What, you know, and one issue with foundation subjects is that curriculum narrowing has occurred because, because of SATs, and that's limited the depth of knowledge in, in the foundation subjects. And while we are moving, I do think we are moving away from that as, as a nation of schools. We are focusing on the wider curriculum, the broad and balanced curriculum and so on, uh, whatever people want to call it. I, I think we have to acknowledge that curriculum narrowing did occur and probably to some extent does still occur in some schools. I mean, at the moment, it's sort of happening unintentionally because of COVID. A lot of schools are focusing on, on the core maths and English and understandably so. I mean, I would be doing the same if I was a leader in a school right now. So curriculum narrowing, either through intentionally or, or unintentionally, has occurred. And that has limited depth. I think in timetabling the foundation subjects, I think they've often taken a back seat. If something's come up 
or what you might have just been like, oh, I'll, I'll teach that geography lesson next week and then do something else, wherever it may be, something's come up, it'll be the first thing to go. Um, so it's, it, the foundation subjects, a lot of them have been an afterthought. We need to address that in, in making sure the, the timetabling, uh, the allocations are safeguarded. We need to make sure that we've got ensuring that that depth it happens, that depth is taught and that only happens by making sure it is timetabled and not ignored. I think we need more depth in subject knowledge as well. I, I know I certainly do because in year six, I can teach year six maths. And then if I drop down to year three, I can pretty much teach year three maths without having to give too much thought into what's changed. Obviously the children are different age and the knowledge, the requisite knowledge is different and so on. But in terms of subject knowledge, I would say I feel quite confident going from a year, teaching year six maths to teaching year, year three maths. The same isn't true of teaching ancient Greece and then having to go and teach ancient Egypt. I need, I need to focus on my subject knowledge more there. And I think another sort of process or thing that's different is with assessment. Assessment in the foundation subjects isn't as obvious or it's not as systematic. Um, we're not as systematic in our approach to it as we are with literacy and numeracy. I mean, in maths, you just, children do a test in literacy they do a long piece of writing um, and we've got those interim assessment frameworks to, to work from um, but we don't have those for um, for the foundation subjects so um, that, that's something that we've got to acknowledge as well I think ped pedagogical content knowledge is very different if I was to teach a modern foreign language I think there'd be a lot more focus on talk and how talk is used in the classroom Whereas if I was teaching um, art or DT, I might allow for more experimentation in, in learning and how the children um, go about learning the content. So yeah, there are certainly a, a lot of differences. And as a primary teacher, you've just got to be a jack of all trades, don't you? And a master of none. And yeah, I, I suppose that, that's, what, that's what I would say is <laughs> there are a lot of differences. I, I suppose you could talk about it for hours, couldn't you? Yeah. And does your planning process take account of any of those pitfalls you know for instance like the assessment and um yeah definitely i mean i think i'm very different in how i plan compared to the average teacher i, I think i spend way longer than most people do um it's just the way i've always done it when i've compared plans with other people they can just have one line and they can work from that great i, I wish i could do that and like i said literacy i feel like i can but where that subject knowledge it, it needs to be so strong I think I spend a lot, a lot longer thinking about how I'm linking things together and so on. Um, so I said, I certainly have much bigger plans than I normally would. And I, I wouldn't normally write a medium term plan for maths or literacy, but I do with foundational subjects. So those three issues I said, depth, continuity assessment, those are things I would think about. So depth, I would read off on the subject. I mean, I taught Great Fire of London last year and I honestly hadn't thought about it since when I was taught it. <laughs> um, so I spent an entire PPA just reading it, reading, watching documentaries, um, thinking about as I was reading it and watching these documentaries, how can I turn this into a lesson sequence and so on. I would think about the substantive and the disciplinary knowledge. Um, so not just building on the facts around Great Fire London, thinking about our historical understanding of it, the cause and effect and the consequence and, and the chronology of it, which doesn't come as naturally for me as I would say it does in English and maths. And then, yeah, pedagogical content knowledge, what is particularly relevant in this individual subject. Whereas, again, maths and literacy, because you're teaching them daily, you don't need to think about it as, as much. I suppose it's probably more a subconscious part of practice now. It's just something we do 
and we don't need to pay as much attention to. It's sort of we're fluent in that. And so continuity, aside from the pieces of knowledge being taught and how they link back, I would also think about specific concepts, how they're being revisited and embedded. So history, we're talking about like civilization, monarchy, medicine, crime and punishment. How, how am I making sure those concepts are, are frequent and how they refer back to? So not just um, individual pieces of knowledge, but concepts as well. Uh, and I would think about certain topics and themes. Children might not have learned about them for a long time. It could be a term, it could be a year. If I use science as an example, I know that's not a foundational subject, but children learn about electricity in year four, and then the next time they learn about it is in, in year six. That's a big gap. Thinking about how to have that continuity between what they've learned previously and what they're about to learn and what they'll go on to learn it is a big part of the planning process. And for continuity as well, I suppose I also think about those cross-curricular links we've talked about. So not pseudo cross-curricular links where like just doing a Roman shield in art, um, doing cross-curricular links that, that build on a depth of understanding. And an assessment, I used to just do one assessment in foundation subjects and I've recently moved to doing two at the end of a unit. So before we used to just do, they're called KWL grids. I look back at them, they are, they are awful, but um, you don't realize, you don't know what you don't know. And when we were using them, we thought they, they did a job. And if you don't know what KWL grid, it's um, it has three columns. The first column's K, so no. Second column is W, which is want to know. And then the last one is L, which is learnt. So in the first column, at the start of the unit, they write what they already know about a topic. In the second one, they write questions that they want to find the answers about. And then the last one, at the end of the year, they come back, they write what they've learned. There were a, a, a multitude of issues with that because if you're doing a bit of a left-field topic they don't know anything about, like space maybe, they don't have anything they could. Some children have loads they can write, some children might have nothing they can write. The second column, what they want to learn, <laughs> they, they write the most bizarre questions <laughs> that nobody could have the, the subject knowledge to answer. So it's almost an exercise in futility. What, what's the point in allowing them to ask, answer all the, ask all these questions I don't know the answers to or that don't really fit in with the learning they're going to do or they're perhaps impossible to answer? It's, it's, it does, what's the point? And then the last one, because it's just them writing what they've learned, there was no retrieval cue for them to think about what they've learned. It's just a column, it's write what you've learned. So they weren't particularly effective. And I changed into doing a substantive um, assessment where I just give um, keywords and then the children have to write about um, in depth what they know about that thing. So if I use that Great Fire of London example, I would just write like Pudding Lane and then I give them space next to it. They can write as much as they, they can think about it. So Pudding Lane is where the fire is believed to have occurred. There's a monument nearby now that if you lay it down, it's the distance between the monument and where the fire started or whatever they, they can remember about it. You can see the depth of understanding through how much a child writes. Um, and it, the amount they've written tends to be an indication of, oh, this child's remembered quite a lot, this child hasn't and so on. And then the following week, I would do a disciplinary assessment. So thinking about the actual, the actual subject, the knowledge of the subject. So in history, the cause and effect and consequence and all that sort of stuff. So um, in that, I only give about four questions and give them as much space they, they want to write about. So an example would be, why did the fire spread so much? Not only are they thinking about individual pieces of information, oh, the houses were made of wood and things like that. 
but they're thinking about the actual idea of cause and effect because they were made of wood, it, they burnt easier, which means they spread easier. And I think that's something I tried out as low as year two. Um, and I, I think older children can certainly do it. There's no reason why I think younger children can't sort of at least have a go and you can introduce them to it. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily do source work with year twos in history. I think with a lot of scaffolding and the right guidance, if you're taking that direct instruction approach, I don't see why they, they can't do it. I'm not, not saying that they're going to understand it in, in, in the same way a year six child might, but there's no reason why you can't say like, oh, we understand the Great Fire of London happened because look, this burned piece of pottery or this bit, bit of a barrel we found in some basement or whatever it is. It, it, it's laying that foundation, isn't it? So that later on they can go and do those things. So yeah, those three things, the depth, the continuity, um, and the assessment, those are things I would always be thinking about. It's not something I used to think about, but that, yeah, it's certainly something I think about in my foundation subjects when I teach them now. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, especially the way you talked about almost becoming fluent in maths and English. And I think in, in my interpretation, you almost build this mental model of all the different situations you've been in. And the more you're in a situation, the more easily you can react to it because you've got all those models to draw on. And um, like you say, if, if you're teaching in year two, one year, and then you move to year four, you're not going to see the same historical or geographical content. Um, you know, and I, I can really relate to that because the Irish history curriculum is very different to the English history curriculum. So you get things like the Great Fire of London and the Tudor period, which don't necessarily get mentioned that much. And so um, you need to almost learn from scratch. Um, so I can totally see why it takes more time. Um, but hopefully there's like a, a thread of hope going through there that it is possible over you know, the course of maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, year, ten years to develop that expertise. And probably one of the reasons why a few years in the same year group is to be encouraged, because then you can have that um, that level of proficiency in one year group, say. Yeah. And then and then build on that, you know, a couple of years later in, in another another year group and so on, you know, because, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what do they say that it, it like to be proficient in teaching a specific year group you need three years I think it's like one year to learn the year group two to sort of start implementing what you've learned and then the third year to just enjoy it and, and teach it freely understanding all the content um, and understanding how to teach children of that age wherever it may be um, yeah I mean I, I taught in year six for three years and it, it was almost like autopilot the third year and I did start to really enjoy it because I didn't have to think about the content as much going into year six and my second year of teaching I have to admit, like I did, I did have to think about long division and, and the best way to approach it. I did have to think about uh, the subject, subjunctive mood and all these things. You, you, like, yeah, so I would agree, yeah. Teaching in a year group for at least two or three years would help you to become, that build that sort of fluency, that that automaticity of, uh, of approaching a certain year group. And so one of the things you're really interested in yourself is task design. What does that mean to you? Well, I think before you can, um, I mean, task design is very self-explanatory, but before you can really think about what task design is, I think you need to first consider what a task is. So a task for me is the means through which instruction is translated into understanding. So it's the chance for us to build, well, we're trying to build a shared notion of knowledge. We as teachers are trying to impart something and we want the, the learner to understand and to build that same shared idea of it which that shared notion can happen in instruction and it does but I think tasks are the better opportunity for building it so 
we have we as teachers have communicated our understanding our knowledge of something and the learn the task is the learner's opportunity to communicate their understanding of that same knowledge so a task is the opportunity to apply knowledge in practice now wh what sort of task people use is dependent like if the teacher thinks knowledge is constructed or if it's simply just transmitted and I, I suppose you don't have to be there's no absolutism there you might think it's both in certain subjects you might do it one way and there's yeah you can vary between the two and i yeah i think you can vary very between the two i i view tasks as part of this sort of three-part cycle of instruction task and assessment which seems like a linear uh, process like we teach we give them a task and we assess them and we move on i think it's more of an ongoing process we teach something uh, but they do the task, we assess it, then it reinforms what we're going to teach next, or it reinforms teaching that same content again next time I teach it. So you're following that process of, of plan, implement in the classroom, and then replan. So I suppose task design is the thought that goes into ensuring that knowledge is applied, how it's going to be applied in the classroom. Um, and obviously that, that um, entails looking at the subject content, uh, your pedagogy, your resources, the amount of time you have, um, cognitive science and how we, we learn best, um, how to guide attention. I mean, there's thousands of things probably. Um, some that we think about subconsciously that is just part of our practice. We don't even really consider it. We just know other things we might pay more attention to because we're not as confident in. So yeah, so I think task design is everything we think about when we're trying to ensure that the knowledge we have imparted to children or to learners um, is going to be applied in a certain way. I mean, I tripped myself out as well. So <laughs> task design is the, everything we think about when we're thinking about how knowledge is going to be applied after we have in, instructed learners about it. Um, yeah, I hope that was clear. <laughs> you know, Crystal, I think it's probably possibly the best definition I've heard of, uh, of task design. And are there any features that really well-crafted tasks contain? You know, so any common commonalities that you think this is a really good task and you can tell by its its sort of features? Yeah, I mean, as I said, like if a teacher thinks knowledge is constructed or a teacher thinks knowledge is transmitted, that might that could completely change the sort of task they use. Um, so one teacher if they're following a sort of constructivist view of learning might have um, a lot of discovery learning and, and things like that. Whereas if somebody is following a sort of behaviorist approach, it might be very rote learning, memorization and so on. So there's differences in tasks, but I do believe there are sort of general principles that underpin what a task is that all teachers consider. So for example, a task is an extension of the instructional phase. So the task is informed by the instruction, what, what we have said to the children, what we have taught them. So every teacher thinks about how the task links to their instruction, whether it be discovery learning or, or not. Um, tasks also have a desired end result. They, they are, it's a goal-based activity. Um, the teacher, when designing a task, has thought about what they want the learner to achieve or to understand. <clears throat> and sometimes that might be explicit like, at the end of today's lesson you're gonna do this or um, and other times it might not be explicit and it might be implied through how they approach the task or how they go about doing the task yeah so the first of all i'd say teachers understand that, that 
tasks are an extension of the instructional phase and how they link back to it. Teachers understand that their tasks have a desired end result. And then speaking about end result is probably the next thing. So it, we can limit it, we can bring it down to sort of this dichotomy. I suppose it, it could be a false dichotomy. People might want to argue with me, but I see it as product or process. Those are the two end results we think about when we're thinking about what, what we want our task to achieve. So process is what the learner thinks about or does to achieve the end result. And a product is what the learner actually produces at the end of the task. So a, an example of a process we might build into our task design, we might want children to follow certain steps. So when we're teaching a non-division, we want to think about the four steps that, it, that you might use to teach it. We're not too worried at the start about the product, the answers they get. As long as they understand the idea of the steps, the answer, we can focus on the answers later. So that might be an example of a process. But if we were to flip that round and focus on product, we're focusing more and I want those children to get the correct answers to these long division questions. So I want, it's what they produce at the end of this task. And then whenever, when we have a process or a product, I suppose there is a, another sort of commonality of task design is that there is a specified methodology that we want the learner to follow or to enact. And sometimes we might make that explicitly clear. So yeah, with long division, first of all, you need to divide, then you need to multiply, then you need to subtract, they need to bring down. We specified that to them. Other times that methodology might not be explicitly stated and we want them to think about prior learning maybe. So if we say, um, if we give them a question in history, analyze this source, we want them to think about when they've learned about analyzing sources before. I don't need to tell them, right, first you look at this, first you look at the date, then you look at who said it or whatever it may be. You, you, so sometimes we explicitly state that methodology and other times we don't. And I, I think there are, there's more general principles, um, but off the top of my head, those are the few I can think of. So tasks are an extension of the instructional phase. They have a desired end result that the teacher wants the learner to achieve or to understand or arrive at. Um, tasks can focus on a product, something that a learner gets to at the end of a task, or a process, something which they think about or do during the task to get to an end result. Um, and then also a way of approaching a task, like there's a methodology to tasks. Um, so an English teacher's tasks might be incredibly different to a science teacher's tasks and uh, it's entirely subject specific i'd imagine but obviously there are some that transcend and um can be applicable in all subjects i hope that's clear because th this is <laughs> this is a lot of reading and like as i'm writing my book on it this is just all these things are flooding through my head so <laughs> i'm sorry if that didn't come across entirely sort of cohesive and coherent in my explanation um but as i'm talking about one thing another thing's coming to my head and um, as you can see, I, I, do, yeah, I do find task design quite interesting. <laughs> no, I think it's it's both fascinating and it's really clear because almost you can see a thread run through where it's it's all about the competency of the pupils involved. You know that will that will have a very big impact on the type of task you design or choose for the pupils. Is now it it doesn't feel like something that you're going to be able to improve overnight, so. How can teachers get better at designing tasks? I would agree it's not something that can change overnight, but then any meaningful change in teaching often isn't. 
something that happens overnight, is it? I, was, I would say they consider those general principles I, I just talked about, um, as well as st- sort of stuff about accessibility, how you make it accessible, uh, challenge, how you make, how you ensure all learners are challenged, not just those high achieving children, um, retrieval, how you think about all those sort of general ideas around tasks. But I suppose one thing I always think about is learning walks and observations. Certainly in my experience of them is that when people have come in to observe me teach, they've come, whether it be Ofsted or SLT or whoever, they've come in and they've, they've observed just that, just me teaching 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then they've walked out. Um, and thought specifically and sort of exclusively only about instruction, about how I delivered the content and where the children paying attention or whatever it may be. But I think there needs to be more of a focus on the task in that lesson. When you observe a lesson, stay for the task because the task is the means through which understanding is actually achieved. And instruction could be amazing. It could be flawless, but when it comes to the task, Children haven't actually been able to apply it well because they didn't quite understand it or there was a misconception or the task didn't marry up to the instruction. Um, so I think it's important to like go back and look at the books, look at the tasks, talk to the children about the tasks and understand um, through that more about task design um, and not just focus so heavily on teacher's instruction. Um, another thing which I think you know is a bugbear of mine. I've talked about loads and it really annoys me. It's sort of this romanticized view of education that fun equates with learning. And in my mind, it doesn't. Fun is not a, a proxy for learning. Um, children, learners, whoever it may be, they need to be engaged, yes, because if we don't have their engagement, if we don't have their attention, we're not guiding their attention, they're not going to learn. If they're distracted, they're not going to learn. It's, yeah, no, I do agree with that. But I do not believe that fun activities automatically means learning. Does that mean that you, you, you can, I'm not saying get rid of fun activities. There are certainly loads of fun activities that do lead to learning. But I'm just saying just by making something fun doesn't make it a, a meaningful opportunity for learning to occur. Um, so I would argue engage learners through the content in itself and how you present it. Um, and through that way, you can make something even like the subjunctive interesting. <laughs> um, so whatever it may be, focus on that. It doesn't just need to be a fun activity. It needs to be focused on engagement and, int- and attention. And don't just believe that fun will, will lead to learning. Um, because in, well, I suppose this will, will lead me on to my next point. In the short term, it might look great in an individual lesson, in an individual observation, it will look fantastic. All the kids are engaged, all the kids are excited, but then in the long term, did they learn anything? Did they remember anything? Um, so that, that, that next point I'm alluding to is the sort of performance versus learning um, and thinking about how is long-term learning going to arrive from this individual task? And if I just do a fun task, is it just going to be something that in the short term looks great, but in the long term isn't successful? Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's a big thing for me. Um, another thing would be um, lethal mutations. So lethal mutations, the idea of just, we as a profession tend to take something on that we read in a book or we hear on a course and we run wild with it. And, and it, it, so it starts to mutate and becomes completely different to its original intention. So one thing, or a couple of things I think about in terms of task design, something like dual coding. So dual coding, 
I truly believe in the theory. It's a very sound theory. There's a lot of evidence to support it. Um, a lot of what Ollie Cav and Adam Box or who else have said is very useful stuff. But a lethal mutation of it is you see worksheets with 30 different icons on them. And then we're not thinking about, is it conducive to the learning or is it making the task, is it hindering the learning? So if I've got 30 icons on a page with loads of text, there's just too much going on. Is it, is it cognitive overload? Is it um, split attention? Am I struggling to focus on one thing? There's so many things. So Joel Colin's one. Um, another one would be retrieval practice. I'm one of those sort of traditional Grinch teachers who thinks retrieval practice has always existed. It's not something new. Um, I believe that the form that we're seeing retrieval practice in a lot, like these roulettes and exit tickets and all these other things, those things might be new, yeah. But retrieval practice, that's something that's just inherent as part of teaching, isn't it? Asking questions, linking back to stuff that's already learned. That's retrieval practice, isn't it? Um, so like, that's another example of a lethal mutation, I think. There may be teachers just sort of forking in um, quizzes here and there without any sort of serious thoughts as to how it can be conducive to learning, how it can be effective and, and create meaningful learning. I suppose retrieval practice isn't an incredible example of that because it's not going to hinder them too much. You are getting them to retrieve, aren't you? So um, it's not as bad as I would say as something like dual coding. It's just one that comes to mind. Another thing, um, this is Mary Myatt's sentiment. She, it's in her Gallimorphry, Gallimorphry, a coherence book. She talks about less content, more depth. Um, which I suppose in other words is just a mastery approach. That's something I think we should think about in our task design. Don't just, just give children more and more and more. Think about what it is, the actual objective that you're trying to teach them. How can you approach that in more depth? So I think the, the common example I always think of when I was maths lead and teachers would come to me, they go, look, I've got this, this year four child. He's incredible with maths, um, but he, he could sit the SATs, the year six SATs now, and he'd get four marks in all of them. Um, I've been giving him year five work, but it's, um, I'm running out of content and, and there's a big debate there. It's, do you give them year five work if they can access it? Or do you think about um, the year four content they're meant to be learning and, and approaching that in more depth? I mean, I suppose you'd be a lot more knowledgeable on that debate than I would. I, I certainly see um, the good points on both sides. I think personally, I would want to focus on the depth of the year group they're in than approaching just giving them year six content because well, they don't get the depth in the, in the knowledge that you want to have, but also when they get to year five, when they get to year six, what are you going to do? What if you've got a year six teacher and they need to start giving them key stage three or key stage four content, which they don't know, they're not comfortable in teaching. I certainly, when I was in year six, wouldn't want to be giving a child GCSE maths because I don't remember a lot of it. <laughs> it's been, last time I thought it, it was in my GCSEs, a lot of standard deviation, so I wouldn't want to be giving them stuff like that. Um, so yeah, less content in, in more depth. Think about how can you break stuff down into smaller steps um, and then approach it in a way that even the most knowledgeable children are challenged and given um, more depth in, in whatever it is you're trying to teach them. Another thing we could think about is using good models for our task design. So there, there, are, there are loads of fantastic resources and materials out there. There's loads of high quality textbooks, which I know you spoke about in your book. Um, which are incredibly useful. And textbooks, I think, are really good for sequencing in particular. Um, they can be very good for breaking stuff down. They can be very good for um, differentiation, if you like to use it. Um, 
so I think, yeah, using those good models that already exist, um, because I know we're very time poor as a profession and we go on Twitter and we go, has anybody got a lesson about uh, daily life for the Mayans? I've got a year six lesson I've got to teach. And then we just take something somebody's given us and use it without much thought as to how it will, how it will suits our individual class and cohorts. Um, so I mean, that's another thing we need to think about. If you're going to use models, yeah, you take that, have a skeleton and work from it, but think about your individual context how you can make this a high quality task. Don't just take stuff that's ready made and assume that it is of a high quality, which I mean, I've got a lot of experience of having done that, having used a lot of schemes over the years out of ease and laziness or whatever it may be. A lot of the stuff I look back at, it just wasn't, wasn't high quality at all. And it's about finding that high quality stuff. I mean, it, again, because we're time poor, we don't have hours to spend, but talk to people, talk to, Talk to your science lead, talk to your history lead, talk to people on Twitter and, and so on. Yeah, I suppose that sort of sums up all of the, the things I can think of. And then the lastly, I would say to um, to buy my book <laughs> when it comes out, because it's all about task design. Little shameless plug in there for you. <laughs> um, yeah, because um, it it, my book will look to marry up all of the stuff I've been saying and look at this in more depth, I suppose. Um, but you, you can see just how how huge task design is. There's so much to learn. Um, and I think it is something that is really ignored. I mean, I certainly did not learn anything about it on my teacher training course. I've never heard anybody utter the words task design in real life. Um, it's just something I'd always been particularly interested in and always read about. Um, but even reading about it, there's really not much on how to design tasks specifically. Um, there's a lot of stuff we can think about and put it, look at it from a task design perspective, but when it comes to actual research and academic papers and educational literature about it, there's really not much that I've found. Um, and a lot of it seems to be about languages or maths teaching, no, no other subjects. So yeah, I think there's a lot that teachers can think about with task design, but it's about sort of dedicating that time to, to engaging with it. And, and that's, that's what comes across really strongly is that to do any of those aspects really well, you're going to need to spend a lot of time thinking, you know, which I like because I think thinking is the bulk of our job and the actual execution is, is only a very small part of it in reality. Um, but you're right, it's about eking out that time and hopefully find yourself lucky enough to have school leaders who appreciate the fact that you need this time because they're going to get bigger gains as a result. Um, and actually, I could, you know, I, I find this whole thing fascinating and the depth and the clarity with which you're going into it. I think we probably have to get you back when the book is published, just so you can speak exclusively about it. Um, because I think, you know, that you've got three or four more hours of conversation about uh, about task design. So I'm look, really looking forward to that. And I'm sure um, anyone listening yeah. will be too. I mean, I'm, I'm happily, I'm ha I would happily chew off anybody's ear about task design if they're interested enough. Um, yeah. It is, it's such a rich part of teaching and it's also at the same time so ignored. It's like, it's just not something we tend to think about. I think perhaps I probably think about it in too much depth. <laughs> I mean, as long as like the learning is, is applied, um, then great. But there are a lot of factors that go into it sometimes that we ignore. Um, and if we're experienced, I think they're factors that we sort of just subconsciously with it's just embedded and we don't need to think about it but when we're newly qualified is it something we think about 
I, I don't think it is. I certainly didn't think about it until the last sort of two years of my teaching career. Um, so yeah, I think it's an interesting topic, and I'd yeah happily come back and talk about it again and cheer your ear off for another four hours about it. Excellent. I remember during my first year of teaching, and there was a disconnect between my input and what the pupils did independently, and so I can totally understand. You know, and that's because yeah. I wasn't thinking about task design in half as much detail as I needed to. Yeah, so I think yeah. that would be really useful for new teachers in particular. Um, and actually, I reckon you'll find this last section rewind quite a few times while people try to get their head around all the, the golden nuggets that you just uh, you just dished out for yeah. free. <laughs> but uh, what you're saying there about teaching a lesson where the instruction didn't marry up with the task, I think every teacher's been there. I, I've certainly been there countless times and not just in my first year of teaching in my fifth year of teaching there are so so many times where i've taught a lesson and i've gone yes i've absolutely smashed that <laughs> oh everyone understands it this was incredible that might be one of the best lessons I ever taught i'm going to go into the staff room i'm going to nibble everyone's ear off and go oh, i just taught this lesson and then you look at the task and not a single child not even one has understood it and and it's that time for reflection going oh actually why why didn't that work what i said was great why like it's that curse of knowledge and, and sort of trying to bridge that gap isn't it between the instruction and the task yeah 100 so you're engaged quite a bit with education reading that's what you've already alluded to earlier on why, why do you think it's important uh, i think in my experience my pgc so like i said i didn't do an undergrad in teaching i just had a nine-month course pgce and i found it quite lacking when i look back at it yeah we learned about bruner we learned about piaget or where his name is and vygotsky um, but we didn't, I think I had two sessions on ICT and one of them got cancelled. I had one session on music. I had about three or four sessions on phonics that there, there really was just such a lack in, in depth. There was just so much more to find out about. I mean, and when I came into the professional story, I, you think, you know, it, you think, you know, a lot of it and you, you just don't, you don't know what you don't know. And it's only as I read more and more, my eyes just get open further and further. Um, and it's important because no matter how good you are, you can always be better. You can always develop. You can always understand more. And, it, and that's true of even somebody who's been teaching in the same year group for 15 years or someone who's even taught for 50 years, however long it is, you can always improve. There's always new things being discussed. Like that's the beauty of Twitter. Every week we're discussing something different. And I've been on it for a couple of years and I, and I don't feel like conversation ever runs dry. It never does. I suppose a lot of it comes down to the idea uh well people differ on the amount here but that you're not an expert until 10 years in i've heard some people say five some people say 10 some people would argue longer i think if we split it down the middle and say 10 i think 10 is a good amount and i feel like the amount i know now compared to what i knew in 2015 is just mind-boggling how much more i know and not just through the experience in the classroom which is where you gain a lot of your understanding and, and your professional practice your understanding of it but also through what I've read, um, who I've spoken to, um, yes. Yeah, so, so, although you're not you're not an expert until ten years in or whatever it is, reading can sort of help accelerate that process and sort of make you closer to becoming an expert in in a short time, I suppose. Yeah, and I think it's important to. There's a lot of theory discussed. There's a lot of theory about this, theory about that, and I think it's important to read theory and then go and apply it. Um, because that's how you truly understand something works or, or not. And I think often we're quick to implement stuff that we've heard works in a school somewhere 
and we implement it and it doesn't work. And we need to think about that sort of cultural relativism where just because it works in this school where it's a one-form entry Catholic school in inner London with 95% EAL doesn't mean it's going to work in a four-form entry in the countryside. So, yeah, I mean, this is an, there, there are just a never-ending list of reasons why it's important. I hope there's a few I've said there. Uh, yeah, I think there's so many reasons. I, I don't think I could bring it down to one. I think it's a multi, multi-faceted um, thing to think about. There is so much to 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 think about, and every week I'm reading something that makes me think, "Oh, I never thought about it that way," or "I've never heard of this." Um, so yeah, th- there are just countless reasons why it's important. And how do you find the time? You know, while you're teaching. Because time is a definite premium. How, how do you find the time for, for education reading? So I am one of those pathetic people who asks for, for books about education for Christmas gifts and birthday gifts and so on. Um, I, got, I got like three or four books for Christmas. I, I think for me, it's a, it's a hobby. It's something I enjoy doing. And I spend a lot of my free time on Twitter or discussing with colleagues. And I don't think it necessarily become, needs to become a hobby but I think it needs to become habitual. It needs to become a, a daily, if not weekly process, something that you do engage with. Um, and obviously there are some weeks that we're busier than others. Um, there are some weeks where we're, we're planning and doing work on a Sunday and we just simply don't have the time, but it's about ensuring. It's just like um, the foundation subjects we talked about earlier about safeguarding that time. And I, I think it's important building from that it's important that leaders give that time acknowledge that time and not just go in uh, like read the, read this blog here's a blog f- to read for this meeting or well, that is useful yes but also giving them time um but i, I mean i know one school uh, buys books they ask each teacher for uh, which book they want to buy um and they buy it and then you just have like a cpd library I think every school should have a CPD library. I think that should be sort of like a, a statutory um, thing that everybody has to have um, because we are a reflective profession. We only develop through reflection, uh, through discussion, through reading regularly. Um, and I think it's important that management and leadership acknowledges that and, and gives us that time for, for reading. Um, because I know there's certainly schools out there that, that expect a lot without giving you that opportunity, giving you that time to do so. Um, so I'm, I'm not entirely helpful in answering this question because I do find it, for me, it is a hobby. It's something I enjoy doing. I've got a lot of friends who also enjoy doing it and we discuss a lot. But, but there's no reason why anybody can't do that. So yeah, that'd be a, a good piece of advice, I reckon. Just find something you're interested in and reach out to people. Twitter is great for that. You, there are whole sections of just subject communities of like just geography community and they just talk about geography or just reading and there are whole accounts dedicated to just an individual subject or just safeguarding or just um, being a Senko or, or wherever it is. So yeah, the, the, the material's out there. It's just about finding that time to engage with it, isn't it? And I think if schools do give their teachers time, you know, because I've read about studies where they look at how many teachers have engaged with academic reading since they left university. And, you know, you can get as much as 75% haven't read anything more than a pamphlet. Um, yeah. And I think it is, you know, like in thinking deeply, I talk about finding five minutes between the kids going 
and starting your first job, you know, in the in the afternoon. But really, if if your if your leadership team are mandating and saying, okay, here is your reading time, you know, <laughs> a it's on your employer's time. B, everybody's going to get better as a result, or even, you know, even gain motivation, even if they you can't implicitly outline this is why they're better. You know, it's it's all part of that process, isn't it? Um, so I think I think that's pretty good advice. So hopefully any any school leaders are listening, they'll be able to say, right, it's time to find 15 minutes before a staff meeting, you know, especially those yeah. staff meetings that could be emails, you know, replace those with a read. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I mean, yeah, you, you, you cut down, the, instead of having an hour-long staff meeting go, here's half an hour, we need to read this academic paper or this bit of research or this blog, whatever it is, and then we're going to have a half an hour meeting and we're just going to talk only about this. We're just going to discuss this. Um, that, that is certainly one way of doing it. And so that, that ties really well into the next question, which is about the research thunderbolt. So obviously the moment the scales fell from your eyes and you awoke to a new dawn, what paper was it for you? Uh, so the, the paper I'm going to pick is something I think I've probably mentioned a few times. It's something I think about a lot now, but I only heard about it in my third year of teaching and um, I was doing my dissertation for my MA and I was reading about um, subject knowledge and I came across this paper called Those Who Understand Knowledge Growth in Teaching and it's by, um, I think his name is Lee Shulman. Um, and basically what it, it sort of illuminated for me is that this interaction between subject knowledge and pedagogy is a lot closer than I thought, uh, but also understanding that they are indeed uniquely separate um, and not mutually, excuse, mutually exclusive. Um, so basically his, his central point in, in the paper is that strong subject knowledge does not equate with successful teaching, um, which was the, the assumption a century ago um, and arguably recently when um, we, had we have academies and you can have untrained teachers, experts, you can have um, experts come in and teach. So you can have a good musician comes in to teach music, but just because they're a good musician doesn't mean they're going to be a good music teacher. Um, and and that, that's something the paper talks about. And he, so he sort of created this taxonomy of, of subject knowledge and he, he expanded on, on teaching knowledge or on, he sort of expands on what subject knowledge is. So he talked about um, <clears throat> content knowledge, which is sort of the general subject knowledge, the substantive um, information and knowledge about a subject. Curriculum knowledge, which I suppose in the modern context is uh, understanding the wider curriculum, how to make cross-curricular links, the curriculum materials you're going to use, um, how prior and future knowledge is um, is linked and how the knowledge you're teaching now is contingent on the knowledge that's come before it. Um, but then the, the key bit, this this next bit in, in the, that taxonomy, which I am referring to, which I um, which was the, really the light bulb thing was me light bulb moment for me is uh, what's called ped pedagogical content knowledge and this is sort of the sort of thinking about uh, the most useful forms and examples and analogies in a particular subject it's sort of this amalgamation of content and pedagogy that only teachers understand and it transcends through different subjects uh, I suppose if I was going to define it I'm going to do myself a disservice here because I haven't read the paper for a while, but my understanding of it is just understanding that each individual subject has its each, uh, e understanding each individual subject has its own sort of conditions and guidelines and 
sort of disciplinary knowledge for teaching it. So the way that you go and teach English is going to be entirely different to the way you teach science. And science is different from art and art is different from languages. And I, I just sort of like, even though I probably was teaching subjects differently in because that's how they sort of, they demand it. I'd never really thought about it that way. And at the time, I was completely unaware of um, the concept of disciplinary knowledge. And this was sort of the, the gateway into reading more about that and understanding more about uh, disciplinary knowledge. So yeah, that for me, it, it was the first time I sort of really started to consider have an understanding of how learners at different ages and different backgrounds understand different topics at different times and different year groups and, and so on. Um, the paper does a lot better ex explaining it than I've just done. <laughs> um, so yeah, do go and read it because he, he discusses a lot of stuff in, in that. But that was the one particular bit in it that um, I'd never come across before that really, really intrigued me and it was the light bulb moment. I can really relate to that. I, I remember when I first started teaching, I was convinced that the more you knew about a subject, the better you could teach it. And the subject knowledge had to be the most important thing. And now the things that are most, that were most counterintuitive back then are the things that I believe most strongly now. And so that's a perfect example of where I've had my ideas change completely. And I'm always, I always say I'm open to have my mind change. And that's one example I, I was, I was certain that uh, subject knowledge was the be all and end all, but actually it turns out that it's uh, it's a lot more complicated than, <laughs> than that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it was an assumption an assumption a century ago for a reason. I mean, it, it, it does sort of sound correct, doesn't it? You think, oh yeah, if I'm teaching um, about sound in science, I just need to know everything about sound and then I'm going to teach it and the kids will get it, but it's that curse of knowledge, isn't it, again? Yeah, yeah and like, that is something that I don't know why that's not discussed. Oh, it could be discussed on PGCs here and to teach. I should I shouldn't uh, um, tar them all with the same brush. I should I should take a step back there and say I I was never told about it, and it's something I think should be should certainly be on every teacher training course. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I can I could I could probably remember being trained. It's been so long, so. Uh... I, can't, I couldn't possibly comment with any accuracy on whether or not I was taught it. Um, so what about a paper that every primary teacher needs to read? What would you recommend? Well, I, I'd do myself a disservice if I didn't come at this from a task design angle. So I'm going to have to say um, it's a paper from 2015 called Performance Versus Learning. Uh, I think, oh, in fact, I don't think it's called that. I think it's called something it might be have a much longer name but it's about performance versus learning if you search performance versus learning 2015 um soda and, and bjork it, it will come up and i think that's the same bjork who who's talked about sort of desirable difficulties and the theory of disuse um, and sort of, he's a great cognitive scientist who's talked a lot about um those areas um it is it that what the reason i think every teacher should read it is because what I talked about earlier, that sort of learning becoming romanticized and we everything has to be fun. If it's not fun, the kids aren't learning. I think that's a sort of byproduct of a of a an era that's slowly fading. The the vestiges are still there, but I think the vestiges are, are very strong and firm and the teachers who believe in it are like, why why can't it be fun? Um and it's not to say learning can't be fun, but it's to say that just because it is fun, it doesn't equate to meaningful learning. So the, the idea of the paper 
Um, and they talk about performance first since learning. Performance is something that we can observe, we can measure, um, we can see it right now. It, um, it's reliable in the short term, but it's unreliable in, in long-term learning. Um, and then, so that's performance. And then learning is, is the idea of a permanent change in behavior. So I suppose the paper, what it's addressing is the idea of short-term, long-term and, and considering those and thinking about, well, I, I come at it from a task design angle and thinking about when I'm designing a task, is this um, going to draw on prior knowledge? Is it going to um, help them have the foundations to understand what I'm going to teach them next week and so on? Or is it just an activity that doesn't marry well with my instruction? It may look good to an observer, um, but ultimately it, it doesn't, it doesn't um, it's not effective. So it, the paper discusses that learning performance duality. And I think for a lot of teachers, it seems counterintuitive and it's often met with incredulity. As, as I said, like I've, I've had so many arguments, well, not arguments, I've had debates. I wouldn't call them arguments. We have healthy debates on Twitter. I've had some healthy debates with, um, with people who, who think differently to me. Uh, I mean, I had one about, um, I think about like Stonehenge being made out, making Stonehenge out of biscuits after teaching about Stonehenge. If we go back to what I was saying earlier about task design, what does that task where learners make something out of biscuits have to do with anything they learn about Stonehenge? Where, where's the link? There's an absolutely zero link there at all. And I suppose building on from that, you start to think about episodic memory. You ask them in a year and the, the kids go, oh yeah, we got to eat biscuits. We got to make uh, Stonehenge out of custard creams. It was great. And you go, but what do you remember about Stonehenge? very little if anything at all i mean i could I, I could list tens of activities that are like that and those activities for me sort of are a prime example of performance versus learning in the moment kids are going to be engaged they're going to be excited because there's marshmallows to to play with that they'll probably get promised at the end of the lesson if they pay attention they listen they get to eat but first uh, think about that in contrast to long-term learning yeah, performance versus learning, the paper, if you Google it, it should come up. I'm sure it's something longer than that. Um, but it, it is an interesting paper when you consider the sort of tasks that you and I see on Twitter and uh, Facebook every day. Um, now, I should probably say, I do not mean to be, although this is probably coming across very insulting to teachers who do that. I don't mean that way because I was that teacher. I, I definitely did tasks like that in my early years of teaching, 100%. 100% um, because I, I thought the same. I thought um, fun activities equated with learning. Um, and it's only through engaging with research, discussing with others um, and learning about episodic memory and performance versus learning that I've changed my mind. Um, so yeah, that, that would be the one paper I would suggest every, um, every teacher should read. Yeah, that's a great paper. And what I'll do is I'll make sure I've got the... Um the link in the show notes when this show, when this episode goes out so that anyone who wants to read it, and I think they should, um, can find that quite easily. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on task design, on reading, um, and on teaching. And good luck with the book. And do come back when it's published, um, and then we can talk about task design a whole lot more. Excellent. Thanks very much for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. It's been great. And there we have it a truly fascinating chat full of superb insights into the world of primary education. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, or leave a review, depending on where you're listening. And if you have any questions for any of my guests, 
head over to the Thinking Deeply by Primary Mathematics YouTube channel and leave a comment and let the conversation continue long into the night. Until next time, thanks for listening.